G'day, teabaggers. I'm just loading a couple of podcasts before I uh, head off to Bali uh, for Limo's wedding. I've never been to Bali before. Uh, I hear it's beautiful, uh, but I'm also terrified of Australians on holiday. So I've never been before, uh, but there's 60 of us going to Limo's wedding, uh, a bunch of comedians. So it will be like a real life version of The Hangover. Uh, so I guess I'm just recording this in case uh, one of us doesn't come back. I probably shouldn't have spent last night watching The Mule uh, by Angus Sampson and Lee Winnell. Uh It's probably not the best thing to watch before you go on an overseas holiday. Uh, anyway, so here's the thing. Uh, what a beautiful movie that is, by the way, though. If you have not checked it out yet, you can check it out on iTunes, On Demand, and that sort of thing. It's called The Mule by Angus Sampson and Lee Winnell. They did a really good job with it. It's a great little Australian film, and the way they distributed it was fantastic. So please check that out. Uh, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of uh, Tofop or Fofop with uh, Guy Branham. Uh, Guy's been a friend of mine since we met doing a Chelsea show, Chelsea Handler show, and uh, he's just a fabulous guy. Just a really great chat, somebody I love hanging out to with, uh, somebody I love chatting with. So check him out on Twitter, at Guy Branham. Send him a message, tell him you heard him on the podcast. And uh, this is the last of the episodes that I have up my sleeve, and then all brand new episodes in the new year. So if you want to come and see me do some shows, uh, January 19, uh, I will be at the Sydney Opera House. Um, I will be doing uh, my Willuminati tour for the very last time. Uh, two shows that night. Uh, still some tickets available, so come to that. And then, of course, my free will tour is uh, already on sale. Uh, Melbourne, uh, Brisbane, and Adelaide shows of free will are all on sale. So get in if you want to get to the, you know, the the Tuesday shows or any specific night of the week. Um, uh, now's the time to get in for those sort of shows. Uh, last but not least, hey, uh, I should mention this. If you're in Australia, I'll be uh, on the project for a week uh, from January 5, plugging uh, plugging the shows and uh, hanging out there. So uh, you can tune in and watch me there as well. But in the meantime, enjoy this episode with Guy Branham and uh, I'll talk to you again in the new year. Cheers. The following episode of Fofop is classified MA. It contains some coarse language, some nudity, drug references, a sex scene, time travel, terrible Batman impersonations, a Charlie Clausen pronounced Clausen-shaped hole, and mild coarse language. Fofop advises that the program is not suitable for persons under the age of 15, and minors must be accompanied by an adult guardian or priest. This is John Deke speaking. Everyone relax. This is Tofa. Ironically, I'm not relaxed. <laughs> Hello, welcome to Fofa. I'm Will Anderson. And guest Charlie Clawson, first time guest Charlie Clawson, uh, the fabulous, the funny guy Brandon is here. Hello, guy. Uh, it's good to be Charlie today. Oh, that was that was very low key introduction for you. Are you doing a new thing? Have you gone the you're going the Todd Barry angle? It's no, just all I, minimal now. No, I don't always yell well. You, really, you, you've mostly seen me in yelling situations. I have, but or eventually you start yelling at me anyway. So I assume that will happen. No, I will. That's a <laughs> that's a fun comedy game right. where I take on a strong perspective uh-huh. and I apply it in a ridiculous way, and that's one of my fun strategies. Right. And so, yes. uh, what what is like normal guy, like everyday guy, when you're at home guy? Oh, I mean, it is louder than a person should be when they're alone. Right. Like I, <laughs> I mean, honestly, I think I do trying to just sort of like be chilled out and calm on like a podcast or something like that. But when I am at home. 
you know, when I make dinner, I have conversations with my dishes and I, you know, I have strong opinions about things and my apartment needs to know about that. Right. Uh, tell me this then. Uh, what's, yes. you, do you cook yourself dinner? Like, are you a regular cooker of your own dinner? Um, I do it a fair amount. I enjoy it. I find it um, like, A, I'm good at it. Uh-huh. So why not? And B, there's something very like nice and it gets the energy out. Um, do you know who Nora Ephron is? Sure. Okay. Nora Ephron used to criticize people who say that, uh, like, cooking is creative because she's like, no, it's very simple. You just do things in an order and then you get something that's very satisfying. Uh-huh. It's the opposite of creative. Like, it's just very rote. And when I'm, like, in a stressed out place or something like that, I, like, go and I take care of shit. And then at the end, good for you, Guy Branham. Yeah, you know what? I, I There is an element of that that I understand because I don't really cook that much. Uh-huh. But I've had a friend staying in like my spare room, like an Australian comedian mm-hmm. crashing on the floor doing some gigs, right? Yes. And so it's like one of those things where it's like, I mean, I have pots and pans because uh-huh. I bought those things because even if you're going to pretend It's a social to obligation. Be, yeah, right. Yeah. Like even like if pe- people came over to my house and they just saw there was no pots and pans, yeah, they would judge me about that. Right. Right. They'd make decisions straight away. Don't you think? Well, no, there's there's totally that thing. And in a city, you can get very comfortable outsourcing many of your right. like normalcies or stuff like that. The thing is, to me, it always feels super decadent that I go to a place and get my car serviced. And I don't, because I grew up in a very like, no, you just change your oil. You're a person. A person changes their own oil. Okay, yeah. And having it, like just handing it off to Mexican men and then like getting it back six hours later always feels like a nasty blowjob. So, <laughs> so tell me this then. Where did you grow up that you were like where they were, um, you know, oil changing people? Because that's certainly my background as well. Yes. My people are oil changing people, tractor driving people, you know, like I've bailed hay. I know, like, you know, you grew up doing things. So you're from Victoria, right? Yeah. That's but right. you're from rural, where? Rural, yeah, country Victoria, about three hours drive sort of east of Melbourne. Okay, and Sydney to Melbourne driving five hours, seven hours? What is that? Uh, you could drive from Sydney to Melbourne, I think, in about nine hours. Jesus Christ, that's a big country. Um, so I'm... It's an hour on the plane. I'm... Well, yeah, I'm like uh, seven, eight hours north of here uh-huh. uh, in like... When people think of California, Northern California, they think of, uh, I'm segueing into material now, Um, (laughs) more podcast material than like stage material. But like when people think of Northern California, they think of like wineries and lesbians. Uh And that is like the nice coastal part. But then there's this like interior valley that's all just refugees from Oklahoma and Arkansas and Mexicans. And I'm from like that part. I'm from an almond farm about an hour north of Sacramento, which is our state's capital. Right. And are your family still in the almond farming business? Well, they like, even when I was a kid, it was just a thing we did to make extra money. My dad works construction Uh and my mom was a cafeteria lady, but she stopped when she no longer had people to support. And they were just dealing almonds on the side. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You would just, well, it was weird to realize like when I was an adult, I was like, you participated in a harvest festival. Like every, (laughs) this time every year you just did this thing where where, like the family got together and my Uh dad would, I mean, construction is just like you get a job or you don't get a job and he would just take a couple of weeks off and then we would knock all of these. And the other weird thing is you said like people from where my grandparents are from say almonds. So when we were talking about knocking the almonds, we always said knocking the almonds, Um, (laughs) but we would like knock the almonds down and then you, the children pick them up and then we sold them 
to like this blue, blue diamond, which is like the company. That, oh yeah, the big the big yeah. nut company. Yes, they, they yeah. were they were our owners. Yeah. Um, and then you made like a so couple, you were working for big nuts. Yes, we were yeah. working for big nuts, as I do in in different ways right. today. <laughs> um, and you know, you made a little extra money, and I always got a present during the almond farming season. Right. The almond what harvest. sort of what sort of present? You would like get a big playset. Like, right. um, there was, I got a mountain that had weeble wobbles in it. You don't know what those things are. The weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. Yes, right? those. I don't know what things we managed to export to. I don't know if we even did export them, but I've certainly heard that phrase referenced enough in American films and like whatever for me to just even, it just came out of my head. I don't well, even really quite know what okay, it is. That's one of the fascinating things about American colonialism that I don't understand, cultural colonialism, mm. is like, there's the bullshit that we managed to get from like the five the five movies and two TV shows that I've seen from Australia or Canada or any of those things. But like how much of that is being thrown at you guys that just doesn't mean anything? That like our incidental phrases about like money and stuff probably do end up being things that you guys hear a lot and possibly use. And that's ridiculous. It's kind of weird. And you know, sometimes where there's like something that's obviously a big American cultural reference, because most of it we get, because we get like, you know, essentially as Australia, you know, it's kind of half American culture, half British culture, and then a kind of amalgam of those sort of things that becomes Australian culture. So we get a lot of British stuff. We get a lot of American stuff. We're normally very hyper aware of Uh those sort of things. But then when occasionally when there's a gap, something that didn't make it over, but it's referenced constantly in things, you get to the point where you're like, what is with that fucking orange juice bursting through the fucking wall? I don't I don't understand it. I don't know what's going on with this, but it's clearly a thing. Oh, God, Kool-Aid Man. That's is hilarious. That yes, Kool-Aid yeah. Man. Right. And so what was Kool-Aid's man origin story? Where does, like, he's like, he was like, what's the bursting through? Because always, he always seems to be bursting through things. You know what Kool-Aid is, don't you? It's like cordial, right? Isn't uh, it? I think so. Oh, yeah. We've just uh, both said two things that yes. may be the same that we've both gone. I okay, it was ridiculous. It was a colored powder that yeah. added chemical flavoring to water but you had to put in your own sugar which made it oh. sort of ridiculous oh okay yeah no. so it's not like cordial cordial is like that combined into a liquid that you put water into right well that makes a lot of practical right. sense because then you're also not starting from powder so yeah. it's easier to mix in no and it was one of those things that like we never had when we were growing up because my mom was like that's disgusting a person shouldn't consume that um, but then Kool-Aid Man bursts through a wall and because he's, you know, satisfying your thirst and he says, oh yeah, and you're a kid and you know that that's cool. Right. You're like, no one with, no, no almond milk man is bursting <laughs> through walls, you know. Uh, I read the other day about almonds mm-hmm. that um, there's a shortage at the moment because they become so super popular. There's three shortages at the moment, quinoa, kale, and almonds. Oh, yeah. Right. And so like almonds super because foods. of almond milk. and Yeah, yes. superfoods. And like there's massive shortages because a lot of those things take a while to grow and harvest. So right. something becomes popular all of a sudden. Well, my question with the quinoa is they're like, oh, the people of the Andes don't have anything to eat because yep. we're taking all the quinoa. Yep. And it's like, well, shouldn't because they're selling the quinoa for cash, shouldn't they be able to afford more potatoes or something? Yeah, totally. One would think. Uh, Quinoa is amazing. But almonds, like, they require a shitload of water, and California is going through a drought, and Uh so that's kind of an issue. But it's a super, super valuable um, agricultural crop. Like, that's a thing, like... I'm from this like shitty farm town and we barely have like the town barely has money and it's terrible in so many ways. But I never realized until I grew up how much bougier 
farm towniness is in California just because we have nice crops. Like right. we have okay, right. nice things that you can't grow elsewhere, yeah, crops. And you're buying and like a lot of them are kind of fancy top end things that people like it's nice to like raise those crops. Yes. Oh, uh, there was like the town north of ours. Um because you can grow these lovely sort of like Mediterranean northern Italian things and they're good, but the town north of ours, somebody had come through like Johnny Kiwi Seed mm-hmm. and convinced everyone that they should grow kiwis because right. they were the strawberry of the future. Uh-uh. And there were all of these kiwi farms that just could not get rid of them. And it was hilarious because there would always be like somebody trying out some sort of new purpose for the ki- kiwi. Yeah, and it was ridiculous. My town also a shitload of prunes, which like the Japanese were became aware of, and then the Japanese started coming and buying all of our prunes because no American wants prunes. Because yeah, well, because it's about regularity, prunes, isn't it? That's they're more medicinal than like delicious, aren't they? Okay, prunes. first of all, they're delicious. Second of all, shitting is amazing. People need to become more comfortable with that and be less self conscious about it. Shitting is very good for you, I and mean, it is good for you. Yes. Um, and provides you with some sense of satisfaction. <laughs> Does it? I think so. I mean, I guess I can understand what you're saying. Like sometimes. Yes. Sometimes. Like, you know, okay. One just feels well. One yeah, just, I feel, I feel God. like, I feel a little yeah. like, okay, I'm back now. <laughs> it's hard. To, I guess it's easier to dump that sort of baggage than the emotional baggage that you carry around with you. It's, it's like, very true. And a lot of... I mean, the thing about Los Angeles is convincing yourself that you can deal with all emotional struggles just through, like, shitting and peels on your faces and getting toxins out in various ways. How are you dealing with the witchcraft and bullshit of Los Angeles? Uh, So, specifically, what do you mean by that? I mean, uh, raw juicing, Uh like, cold-pressed juices. Yeah, I'm not into that. And I'm not really into fruit in general. People, t- but people spend a lot of time talking about these like lifestyley things uh, that would otherwise like attention that in other places might be applied to like religion or politics in Los Angeles is applied to what are you eating or not eating right now. Oh, I know. Like, don't get me wrong, and like I understand the idea of a fresh juice might sound really nice. I'm not even really sure what cold pressed is. Like to be honest with you, yeah. but I know that a lot of places they make you like pay seven dollars or eight dollars, and you have to bring the bottle back the next day. I'm like, I just maybe wanted a juice. They're terribly expensive, and it's really exciting. Here's another question. I, for so you. I haven't done that. Okay. I, I I don't eat meat, so this is good town for me because oh, I've never been a meat eater. Why? So, do, why do you not eat meat? Uh, moral, moral, moral for me. Oh, yeah, but you I don't grew, like killing animals. You grew up on a farm, uh-huh. so you're presumably familiar with animals. Very familiar with animals. All of the animals that we eat are real, real stupid. Also, to some extent, assholes. Do you think that we should eat stupid assholes? I mean, that seems what you're saying. Like, uh, I mean, if we're going to institute that rule, I'm happy to go back to the table and have a negotiation because I feel like uh, the only way we can evolve as a human species is A, we're going to run out of food. So yes. if we start eating the stupid assholes, we might actually have a chance to evolve into a better society. Uh, look, I'm not going to deny that meat is very wasteful. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, the way that we approach meat, like there is something, anytime I let meat go bad in the refrigerator, there is this thing of like, Oh, that was alive. That Uh was a living creature. And also that was a shitload of water and a shitload of grain that went into that. And you just bought that and wasted it. Uh, at the same time, I always think that when I'm watching like Top Chef or like uh, Gordon Ramsay, and he's just like making them throw meat away because like it was slightly under medium rare or whatever. And you're like, you know what? Get, have another show like out the back, which is just like <laughs> we feed homeless people who aren't as fussy as you, Gordon. Uh, but you, I mean, you have to assume that the crew is getting it in some way. Let's hope. Um, 
<laughs> I but my honest belief is we evolved with we evolved as omnivores, uh, and I think that that is normal and natural for us. And I think that people have a tendency to romanticize animals in a way that is like is reflective of not having experience with them and uh, like understanding exactly what they are. I, I agree with you a bit on that, which is because I my attitude is always, and, and, and people who've listened to this podcast have heard me talk about this a lot, which is it's literally a choice for me. I'm uh, the last person in the world. I, and like I feed my cats. I have cats for a yes. start. I feed them meat. I'm not some crazy like person who's like, my cats are vegans. Right. No, they're not. They're fucking cats. Yeah. Like let them, because you know what? They're not a fucking vegan when you're not looking. Right. Like, you know, they're just going to go and kill meat things to eat them. And I didn't mean to be, and I w- no, no, wasn't I like trying to be defensive. I, I'm just sort of like explaining where I come from because I do think, you know, from many perspectives, we tend to do things just because it's what's done. And I, as you know, I'm very pushy and like to yell at people. And so I do think you should have a solid answer for pretty much anything you do and if it involves killing something else probably a better answer than that oh that's that's a really interesting point because i think if you've thought it through and you're comfortable with it i'm fine like you know i mean as it's one of those things but the people who don't think it okay here's the thing this is what i was going to say to you about the farm thing Uh because growing up on a farm you see that and this there's a great book called eating animals by jonathan saffron and it um talks a lot about the idea of if we just farmed how we're meant to farm Right. right and if the cows like if the cattle or whatever the sheep whatever are raised humanely until the time they die then i get that we are at the top of the food chain of them and that to me is the shit that I don't like is the battery farms and the cowschwitz, like, you know, in the middle of the day. That, that shit I, makes me feel uncomfortable. You've raised several very interesting concepts. One of the reasons that lamb is awesome is that you just kind of can't farm sheep the way that you do cows. Like, right. cows are so docile, and you can just put them in a place and feed them a shitload of grain that sometimes has ground-up sheep inside of it, and yep. that's disgusting and gross. But, like... Although it's kind of like one of those turduckins where they shove up, <laughs> like... <laughs> Well, and then there's the other thing of like, oh, turns out when you farm cows the way that you're supposed to farm cows, yep. like it's wonderful and the fat has a profile like salmon yep. and it's like so good for you. Oh, uh, second point is, did you have chickens growing up? Yes. Did you have to go get the eggs? Yes. As a small child? Yes. So you have been- In fact, atta- and still even my uh, grand, uh, the, like the grandkids are still doing that. It's a family tradition. That's- What are you going to tell me that's disturbing? (laughs) Oh, no, it's just having roosters come after me as a small child Uh and like slice up my my shins as I was getting the eggs and just sort of and like that. I eat chicken and eggs because it is revenge. Uh Like that is me just getting back at them. Also, have I told you my splashy and amazing Jonathan Saffron Fowers eating animal story? No. Well, tell me. It's very it's very name dropping. It's one of the name droppiest stories I've got. Okay. Oh, uh, it just comes down to, uh, I was in a movie with Natalie Portman and she like, I saw that movie. had gotten, um, a, um, like a message from Jonathan Safran Foer asking her to write a, uh, a blurb for eating animals. And uh-huh. she was like, what should I say? Uh-huh. And I, usually the story has a part before it where I talk about how Ashton Kutcher is stupid and I laughed in his face. And then this is the second part, but it okay. just comes down to, she says, what should I say? He's writing a book about factory farming. What should I say? And I was like, I have no idea. Uh, cause I was, because you know me and I like to have opinions and always have answers. But in that situation, I was sort of scared enough that I was just deferential and giggled and looked down. Uh-huh. Uh, and then Ashton Kutcher said, factory farming. What a great idea. 
I mean, what a great idea. How many jobs did that create? How many jobs would it create if we grew food in factories instead of in the ground? And then I had to, I had to not laugh in his face, and it was very hard. Uh, and then, like a year later, I ended up having to go to work for him, and our power dynamic was entirely shifted, and I hated it. He has, uh, he's an amazingly successful dude. Like, he's one of those guys when you look at, you know, sometimes where you go, oh, you know, I get why George Clooney's successful, yeah. or like Brad Pitt's successful, or whatever. But, the, but when you know how well Ashton Kutcher's done outside, you know, being an actor, Ashton Kutcher, like, it's, it always kind of surprises me. It's a fascinating model for essential, like, he decided that he was going to be smart and successful. Yeah. He decided he was going to have that celebrity production company that did a bunch of stuff. And like, regardless of what his limitations are, him putting himself out there and being aggressive about it. Like I knew guys who were in Silicon Valley who were like, he just keeps coming and wanting to visit and we don't know right. what to do. So eventually we just offer him stock options. Yeah. <laughs> and it was hilarious. Now he's got shit tons of money. Right. Insane. Yeah. Yeah. He's done, he's done very well for himself. I mean, I wish I could be one of those people. Like, I, I, you know, you wish you could be one of those people who is just like very directed and all of that, but I'm not. Maybe you are. You sort of seem like you kind of are. I, I think that my passion is for things that, like, I wish that I had like the passion for some of the ideas that I have sometimes. Like, you know, when you think of like something that could be like an app or a startup or a business or a whatever, just because you're like, this should be a thing. Yeah. Why doesn't somebody do this? Those sort of people go, well, I'll do this. Right. You know, whereas I go, why won't somebody do this? <laughs> it's the interesting thing of like being a stand-up comedian, You s there has to be a certain amount of self-awareness and self-doubt that sort of gives you context. Uh -huh. Like that, that makes you your ideas make their own gravy. Like you, sure. your ideas become more complex. And I feel like that leads people to self doubt. And it's always interesting when you meet those people who are that blend of full of doubt enough that they can come up with jokes, but also singular of purpose enough that they can like make their way through the system. I sort of assume that you are one of those people, but only because you are very tall. Right. No, I think that's right. Yes. I think that is kind of it. Yes. Like, I mean, because th there's got to be something like broken inside you to do this, right? Right. Right. And also, I think that that thing that you're saying about self-doubt is, like, if you are somebody who is questioning things constantly, because the world doesn't actually have any firm answers, mm -hmm. like, there literally are no firm answers to these questions. A right. bunch of people have a bunch of theories, but there are so many things that the combined wisdom of the entire planet still can't explain. Uh -huh. So if you're constantly looking for things and questioning things, of course there's going to be self-doubt because there's no real answers. Yeah. Like, I think that's why people uh, like you know, join up to a religion or ideology or whatever. They go, look, I don't want to have to think about it all the time. Give me fucking 10 rules I can follow and I'll follow those rules and then I can just get on with whatever else I'm doing. Well, there's a, the fascinating problem of the people who get the most stuff done are also the ones who are blinded to everything outside of that thing that they're right. trying to get done. Um, and like how people love to be critical of that, but like it gets the skyscrapers up and part uh -huh. of me has to like respect that. Oh no, no, but that's the, I mean the, so many of the great things, I mean, Steve Jobs is a good example, right? Yeah. Steve Jobs was a terrible person. Yeah. Like a terrible person who changed the world. Right. Right. Yes. Like, you know, but, but a terrible person. I, I don't know that many stories about him. All I know is he, I just know the story of his adoption. For some reason, I know right. no other stories about it. 
who are you fascinated by? Like I was talking uh, to uh, another guest on the podcast and uh, that idea of is there somebody that anytime there's a story about them or, you know, anytime, like for whatever reason that you can't understand, you just have to watch it or look at it or, you know, consume it. My lifelong obsession is Margaret Thatcher. I just can't get enough. Uh Of the Iron Lady. What about her? Uh, I think it was just when I was five years old or whatever. You just hated workers (laughs) and unions. Look. (laughs) And like I was just talking moments ago about how I must respect the people who manage to ignore other people's issues. But like get shit done. What other lady has been in charge in that way who wasn't somebody's daughter or wife now we've gotten to the point where i'm yelling uh-huh. i like you guys had your lovely julia who like kept hold of the reins for what three or four years yeah if that yeah and it's like um i think when i was a kid like being gay is weird and the like the the way that it like fucks with your perspective and the way things that like make a different sense to you that people <laughs> maybe wouldn't think about but you know little little gay boys are just more interested in women than, okay. than little straight boys are uh, and we're interested in men too, and like it doesn't cross your mind that you're unlike Benjamin Franklin, but it also doesn't cross your mind that you're unlike Margaret Thatcher, you uh-huh. know? Right. Um, and she was just so commanding and decisive. And I hated the movie The Iron Lady because it didn't get to like those moments that are like the fucking moments where like she stares people in the eyes and says, "Uh uh-uh, you know, like where she slams uh, down uh, the road to serfdom and says, this is what we believe. It wasn't the road to serfdom. It was a different book by Friedrich Hayek, but, or, you know, when she said they're waiting for me to turn the ladies, not for turning. It's like badass action movie lines that she's actually throwing down. And she was, a terrible monster and broken and all of that stuff. But you know that the iron lady was a movie about it's so sad. Nobody loves her. Fuck that. Yeah, fuck we that. make movies about so many dudes who did so many awesome things and terrible things. And we're just like, look at what a fucking badass they were. And like, <laughs> there was, I'll tell you an example. This is one of my favorite stories. This is a popular Australian story. I don't think it was in the movie. I can't remember, to be honest. But there's a, a journalist called uh, George Negus, who's like, was on our 60 Minutes and was like a big, you know, star in Australia. And he, uh, in the street, you know, kind of shoved the microphone in the front of her face. And I can't remember what the thing he asked, but he was like, some people are saying that you've lost the blah, blah, blah. And she just turned on him. And you've never seen a guy who was like this, you know, yeah, he was like a road war- warrior, Anderson Cooper in these areas, yeah. right? And he's just gone, who? Tell me their names. <laughs> no, I've totally seen that clip. Yeah, right. I've totally seen that yeah. clip. And, uh, Oh, uh, I was I was coming back from shows in San Diego, and I was making a friend watch clips. And there was one where, when she was uh, Secretary of State for Education, a little girl asked her. I mean, it's just like this, the Minister for Education talking to children, mm-hmm. and a little girl says, uh, "Were your school days the best years of your life?" In like a very working class right. accent, and then in her prim, like affected middle class accent, explains no. Her school years were not the best years of her life. She liked the periods of time when she had a greater sense of personal control and liberty and could earn money for herself. And it's like, it's both ridiculous who talks this way to a child, but it's also just fucking honest. Right. Because like... I mean, the question, you really could have looked at the teacher who's gone, you know, well, your school years are the best years of your life. And go, you know, I'm a prime minister of the whole country, right? <laughs> like the first one. The first female prime minister. So you think that finger painting was better than this? 
achieving my lifelong dream. And it's like I, that level of ballsiness is, uh-huh. is very appealing. Uh, very appealing to Americans. I think. I think that for gay men, there is this weird thing of trying to find because you're full of testosterone and you have a sense of bravado, but then you're alienated from like dude culture. And like, there is this way that, you know, your badass Broadway divas like really speak to you. And I feel like being somebody who was, um, who never got the message that it wasn't my place to care about like politics and history and things like that very much has this kind of diva worship relationship with this awful, wonderful, broken creature who, like, (sighs) stormed to the top and kept everybody terrified for a good 12 years. Yeah, I get that. I get that. Well, mine's Russell Crowe. I know that's not very similar, but, like, for me... Why? Don't know. Can't explain it to you. How much older than you is he? Uh, I guess 10 years, something like that. Was it the fact that he just sort of, like, busted out of your country and played the big game i think you know what i think it is that he's so wonderful but so ridiculous all at once like i don't know if i like him or hate him or pity him or ridicule him or sometimes i'm like inspired and fascinated but like and it's all those things often in the same sentence do you like his movies Mm, some of them like i mean there was a period in like the you know when he did the insider yeah like that period where he got nominated where he was great right he hasn't done heaps of great stuff since then but but there was a period of time well, he he really had such a fascinating t- turning point of going from these like really good, really interesting movies where he's doing fascinating things, right? A Beautiful Mind, all those movies. To even like Rumpa Stumper, the Australian movie. There's a great. Have you seen Rumpa Stumper? No. He plays a Nazi skinhead, like a Nazi skinhead gang. It's oh, I've heard about that movie. Horribly violent. He's brilliant in it. Like, yeah, it was his big breakout performance in uh-huh. Australia. He also plays. I saw they made this movie out of a play called The Sum of Us, I think it's called. Uh huh. And but that's him and the gay dad, right? Right. Yeah. Jack Thompson. Yeah. And I thought his performance in that as this like blokey rugby league playing like uh-huh. gay son thing yeah. was at the time, like, you know, back when he did that, yeah. for Russell Crowe to play that character was kind of like it was a big deal, you know? Yeah. So I kind of was fascinated by him. But even back then, because he had his, like, he was a musical artist, Russell Rock in New Zealand. Oh, really? With a Q. Yeah. Oh. So I've always had that thing of going, oh, you're all of these things. You're wonderful and terrible all at once. And I can't, I just can't. This podcast is named after him. It's oh, called, really? So it's called Tofop, but his band was called uh, <laughs> Tofog, 30 Odd Foot of Grunts. And so like, this is like 30 Odd Foot of Pot. Yeah, it's like named after, like, that's my fascination with him. I, I don't know what it is. Like he tweets his gym workouts every day, but I can't stop following him on Twitter. <laughs> like he goes for a ride on his bike and he smokes cigarettes and I just... he's my Kardashian or whatever like would you be able to have like a a conversation with him I've said so many terrible things about him over the years that I can't imagine that I would be able to like sit down and have a but if he kind of came up to me one day went hey you know I know I've heard those things but I think it's kind of funny which would not surprise me because that's also a thing that I've heard about him is that he actually like he's so pretentious in real life yeah but then I hear from people all the time that he's got a really great sense of humor about himself and so so you weren't able to have a campy mix of like fascination and regard and like dis- loathing yes. and like yeah all of that uh, all of that that's wonderful right uh, there seems to be like a fair number of people who do the just an Australian music act and then they become an actor and then we get them I just know that that happened to Judy Davis as well right. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Oh, is it just because it's a smaller market there that it's easy to sort of like 
achieve all of these things. Be a triple threat, you know, yeah. that sort of thing. I think that there is part of that. Like, I mean, I definitely think that, like, if you're, like, say, Hugh Jackman, for example, like, he was kicking around acting and doing musicals uh-huh. and, like, hosting shows. Like, there is a tape in Australia somewhere. Now, I- I'm surprised that people don't ever bring this out because it was this tiny little kind of, like, fashion magazine, like, adver- not even advertory, but you know that one of those things that basically it looks like it's an ad for everywhere that they're yeah. visiting and, like, doing a thing. And it was hosted by two guys who were pretty unknown at the time, and I think it was that both their... TV hosting things, the co-hosts in Australia, Hugh Jackman and Rove. There is a tape somewhere of the two of them hosting this show together that no one ever watched. Oh, that's so fascinating. So, yeah. So, I mean, I guess that you grew up in the public eye a bit there. So, everyone normally has like a home and away or something under their belt that's, you know, like... (laughs) Well, no, um, my my greatest issue, like my greatest pride at living in Los Angeles, which I think I've told you this before, but your listening audience needs to hear, mm. is the sheer number of people from who were the hot teenage boy on an Australian sitcom. One of your two. No, uh, soap opera, Home so, and Away right, or, or Neighbors. neighbors. Yep. Like they're just around. Some mm-hmm. of them are working actors. Some of them just work at my gym. Mm-hmm. But like... Um, <laughs> yep. It's just fascinating to to have them here and realize like an entire generation of young Australian homosexuals masturbated to video of you. You're right. super hot. And well, but yeah, I mean, and they've done well. Like enough of them have done well that all of them have come. Yes. You know, like Hayes Ledger and uh, like uh, Chris Hemsworth. I mean, but you know, even Guy Pearce and guys like that were on Neighbours. Russell yes. Crowe was on Neighbours. Guy Pearce was so dreamy. Here's my question for you about your movies. Uh, you guys... Make a fair number that we never see, right? Not that many anymore. Um, do they tend to be interesting because they have to be small budgets and stories, or do they tend to be terrible because a national film board is telling you what to make? Uh, somewhere in between. Uh, so you'll have a couple of little gems every year, but this, the size of the budget makes it very hard for like anything to be popular. Because uh-huh. essentially, what like. For a while, like you could not go to the movies in Australia without seeing Kate Blanchett playing a heroin addict. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like that's the sort of thing that, like, you know, you make these kind of interesting, small budget, or like um, important movies, like and good important movies, like Rabbit Proof Fence, or like movies that have big sort of things yeah. that, like, you know, um, but they don't d- then tend to become popular crossover successes because it's not like a date night movie or a family, you know. One of my obsessions was seeing. Uh, the highest grossing Canadian made movie in Canada since Porky's was buddy cop movie, like English speaker, French speaker. And I was like, Oh God, I want to see the 1980s buddy cop movie that they made in the late nineties. Like what is their attempt to make a mainstream film for themselves? And it was pretty funny and it was uh, kind of fascinating, but so we have the tiny little indie scene. Some nice little movies come out of that. Mm-hmm. Then maybe if you have like a mainstream thing, like maybe a popular comedian or whatever will do. Like there was this comedian called Nick Giannopoulos, uh-huh. who is like a, I, I think he's Greek, I think, Giannopoulos. That would um, make sense yeah. from his name. And um, he had a very popular show. Uh, in Australia, the word wog was reclaimed by Italian and Greek people when yeah. they came out as like, so he did a really popular show called Wogs Out of Work. Uh-huh. You know, it was kind of like one of those Russell Peters things or whatever, where a guy has this massive audience that yes. is in one sort of community and they love the jokes and get what he's doing. Right. And it was massive. Yeah. And he had a 
show, a sitcom called Acropolis Now, and then he did, you know, Who Let the Wogs Out. It was all like that's the sort of world you were in, yes. right? So, but he had a really popular movie called The Wog Boy, which like was a pretty mainstream success, made like thirteen or fourteen million dollars in Australia, which was like a big. To- like- did he play his own mother? Because if he didn't play his own mother, doing his fun Greek accent, I feel like that movie was ill conceived and needed more development. You know what? I've never seen it. But- <laughs> I I couldn't rule out that that happened. <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't want to put all my money on one way or the other of right. that happening. That, I there is certainly that. a possibility that. Um, then you have kind of. There's one other end of the market that I haven't mentioned. Uh-huh. Baz. Oh, but that's what's okay. Look, I'm sorry to make I think you... four of the top ten grossing Australian films of all time are Baz Luhrmann films. So really, our movie industry in some ways is Baz. The, uh, okay, I'm sorry to make you as an expat talk for your country. And it must be annoying to have to talk about Australia so much. But also... Actually, you know what? It's funny because when you're in a country, uh-huh. like... you. People always ask you about things that you don't necessarily... Because you see them every day or because right. you... Like, you know, we just accept that ba- like Baz Luhrmann's... And a, like, you know, no one really questions yeah. any of it. So it's I, I don't mind talking about this. The way that someone is... Po- it's possible for them to become so outsized in your culture. Uh-huh. Um, because when they hit it, I'm sure they're everywhere. Yeah. Um, that's fascinating. And it's also really interesting when it's not the, like typical person you would expect like um adam going like when it, i'm obsessed with canada which is um so much like you guys but also just across the fence from us so is constantly having to deal with a whole lot more uh, like shoviness you guys have space from both us and britain and i think that you've benefited from it point is like adam going this like you know armenian canadian becomes one of the big names and then suddenly all like half of Canada's films are dealing with Armenianness right. in some way. And that's fascinating. But like Baz and being such like a distinctive voice and like having such a distinctive style dominating what goes on in your like like media, that's very interesting. Also, him trying to create national origin epic for you guys and like sell it to the world and the world say we're good we don't care about the bombing of darwin thank right. you <laughs> we australia agreed with the world really yeah was that movie bad it was bad yeah okay because i really felt like that was something i should say just oh I, are you attracted to hugh jackman at all oh god yes okay then you should see this movie yeah there is i think there's literally a scene uh, from my memory where he just takes his shirt off and pours a bucket of water over his head and just i mean it's like it's essentially porn but seeing somebody go from like being in his late 20s and in good shape to being in his 40s and in Wolverine you know, shape human growth yeah. hormone shape is hot to me but also just sort of like what an interesting path for your life i'm also kind of interested in those guys who do get on the the superhero train and it's like is that what you wanted like you had millions of dollars and you were doing very interesting things and that he goes back to broadway and that he uses all of his skills is very interesting i feel like hugh jackman if i'm i'm in and who fucking knows but my guess is from like following his career is that he like likes because his thing's always been like musicals and broadway and all these sort of you know weird quirky so i think he just like takes the wolverine money which keeps him popular and interesting and then that means he can just go and do plays no one's heard of on broadway or whatever um tell me about like 
the the Robin Williams story in as a comedian, in what ways did it resonate with you? That this may seem like a, a hard break from what we were just discussing, but I think it does. Come, for me, it is so much about this guy who had achieved so much and like been so successful, really clearly because like listening to his last wtf i don't know if you listened to it but yep, like i listened um, to it the day he died in fact like this is a guy who was clearly fucked up about where he was in his career and uh-huh. sad about it and that's weird for those of us who have not been nearly as successful and i don't just mean successful in like a money way but in a doing what you want to do kind of way um, and it's a, it's a weird lesson. I just wondered what your thoughts were. I, well, I'm interested in what you're saying about that. I, I've been thinking about this a lot recently because firstly, no one has ever been as successful as Robin Williams. Like he, so if you, and, and we all understand that like those two things have nothing to do with each other. Right. And in some ways this is like a, you know, a case of really proving that like he had everything and he was beloved around the world. Like he never needed to work a day for the rest of his life. Yeah. And he certainly would have been like, you know, but you know when you are you are, when you have that disease you don't know about that yeah. but there it, it's this is something i've been thinking about in my life and i'm in no way comparing myself to robin williams by the way but i've thought more and more lately i've enjoyed so much being here and people like not knowing who i am you know uh-huh. i've enjoyed that anonymity and i've enjoyed the fact that you know i can go to the shops in my ugg boots and i've enjoyed the fact that you know i can go and do little really gigs and try things that, though, i know boots. i know i should not do that i understand that but i've enjoyed the fact that i can that's my point yes and i funnily enough that you mentioned that i had them on around the house here and i took them off because i knew you were coming <laughs> over i was like I, I you know what i said i can live through a lot of things but if i'm wearing ugg boots when he gets here i'm gonna hear about this every time we speak for the rest of my life that's valid right <laughs> so um i think there's something about i think there's something about a level of like uh, being well known enough or having enough success that you can do what it is that you like to do. Like I, I'm, I get to do right now what I like to do all the time. Now it obviously won't last like this moment, but this moment right now is kind of almost perfect. Yeah. Like you know, I've got the stuff back home, so I get whatever I need out of like doing the big shows. But then I get whatever I need out of you know not having that and trying new things, and it feels like such a perfect balance. And weirdly enough, if you I kind of think like everyone, the nature of doing this is that of course you want it to get more successful and more people to know you. But there's also a part of me that knows that if that happens, as good as that would be, I will lose this moment that just feels so wonderful and perfect. And and I look at someone that big and sometimes I go, I don't know if I would ever want to be Rob, not that I'm going to be, so it's not late, but I don't know if I'd ever want to be Robin Williams famous. Hey, stop denying that, okay? You, uh, you have to use the secret and visualize positive things. Um, A, there's the, the interesting thing of like, I don't think you ever become, oh, and you actually have some perspective on this. I am always of the belief that you don't become, you can't go to the supermarket famous unless you sort of like ask for that, unless right. you sort of like push through that boundary. Because I've, I've seen a couple of people go from being famous to are not in public anymore famous uh-huh. and that is interesting to watch and it seems like a kind of death uh, right th- but there's also the thing of i feel like we have a capacity for we have media that we have not grown up enough to be able to use and we have like we see people in all aspects of their life now 
but part of us is still kind of expecting a 1950s sensibility of what a celebrity is or like a very sort of like single facet and it's the thing of you know can you cry at starbucks because of something that happened in your life because you're leading a life right and like have it be all right that people see you and how or or have it be all right that that people take photos of you and and have the people scrutinizing that media be mature enough to say like oh it's a person it's a person who goes through things and is not just but i mean half of it is that like so many people go into entertainment to because they want to have a feeling of glamorousness reinforced on themselves. And comedians, like, it's weird to watch a comedian because so much of what we're about is talking about vulnerability and stuff to then have somebody who wants to be pretty and beautiful and famous and not have an internal life and all of those things. And it's like, I don't get what you're doing. Right. I mean, that comedy would probably work to a very specific audience of other people who are in that situation. Like, you know, one of those backstage conversations where you're like, you know, you know how hard it is to get a chauffeur these days. Like they are things that you could talk, but no, most people don't have that experience. Like, you know, it's, I think as a comedian, it's, I was thinking about this the other day and it, I've told this a little bit on the podcast but it's interesting because we talked about Baz and we're talking about this. Apparently Baz, I read this article about Baz the other day and essentially he's set up his life to be 100% creative now. So people walk ahead of him and open the door. Like Baz doesn't have to you know, worry about bills or food or whatever. Like it's just 100% being creative and being Baz all the time. But I think that's why he makes the sort of movies that he makes. He makes these big not connected to reality fantasy creative things you know the, these celebrations of excess because look the other day if, I was- if our job was just figuring out a new setting for benjamin Britten's romeo or midsummer's night dream right. that would maybe be valid but you need to be able to make jokes about you know cookies right <laughs> no but you do yeah. like I, I i think that so much of it like it was even the other day i was watching something that i'd recorded and i realized you know what don't fast forward through the ads. Right. Like, because that's actually what I need to know. Yeah. I need to know that Matthew McConaughey is in that new car ad where he's like being, or whatever. You know, I need to know what these cultural reference points are. Fuck, I might even see some Kool-Aid coming through a wall. <laughs> they're like, oh, I get it now. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. You kind of have to connect with, you know, well, people. Who are you going to talk to? It's interesting. Um, do you think that LA is bad for that? Do you think that LA itself can be bad for that? Um, I think it gives you uh, a, a fucked up sense of the way the, the world works, but I also think that like it's organic and like it, there is a real world and real lives going on here and you know, they're, they're just a little bit different. We have these terrible private schools full of pampered children, but they are still having first crushes and all of those things. Right. Um, there's the glossiness that comes along with too much money and too many attractive people and you know, I that that can disconnect you. That is right. that is true. It's interesting. Like, I mean, any like city because I I think this because like mostly I just like hang out with comedians or people that you yeah. know from around the thing. So it's not like you know you're dealing with the rest of LA people. Are like, how do you deal with like you know the the fake people or the blah blah blah? I'm like, well, we have a different type of fake people. We have broken fake people. <laughs> well, I mean. And there's the weird thing of, like, there are people here who want to create a fiction of themselves. And, like, that's true. But as you're saying, as you're saying, I mean, those people are everywhere. And I think the fact that they're – one of the things I like most about Los Angeles is there are so many hot people here that, like, 
you everybody gets full up of it and like there are enough hot people and like my role as a not hot person uh-huh. is like valid and understood we need him too be, like you know where like if I, if you're in indianapolis uh you were the hottest girl in indianapolis <laughs> or the hottest guy in indianapolis but you've come to the big town and suddenly you uh, right and you have so many people who are the hottest person in indianapolis yeah. who come here and really think that that's going to be enough and los angeles gives them a cold heart no i'm sorry yeah. you're going to have to bring more to the table because there are hotter people than you yeah sorry indianapolis uh, you're in the minors you're <laughs> gonna have to get up into the big leagues for a start and i respect that and i also think that there is something just I, I'm a Californian. I like California. And there's just sort of like a breezy sense that everything will be fine that I really appreciate. I really like enjoy it. At, you know, people from the rest of the country are so frequently like terrified or paranoid. And like here, you know, we've got enough money and it's not going to snow on us. Honestly, I didn't find Sydney to be that different. Like they both felt like, cities full of hot people that were a little bit full of themselves uh-huh. and had a lot of glossy life going on um, and ridiculousness. And that was fun. Yeah, there is certainly an attitude of like Sydney, I always think is like, you know, I've lived there for 15 years and it's like a, it's a girl who was pretty at high school. Like the things, like, you know, it's so beautiful yeah. that no one has ever like required it to have a distinct personality. <laughs> they're just like, you know, they, they're like, oh yeah, but she's so pretty. Look at that water in the bridge. That harbor is ridiculous. Right. That harbor is gorgeous and ridiculous. It's also the thing that fucks up the whole city because no traffic can flow in lanes and it's all, like they built this city around curvy little places down by the ocean, you know, yeah. so, but it's the greatest thing about it and the thing that kind of makes it hard as well. Well, there's also something very interesting about like... Going to the gay bars in Sydney, mm-hmm. like... What, is there a difference in the energy to the gay bars in Sydney and the gay bars here? Oh, Jesus Christ, yes. Like what? Uh, gay guys don't get into fights here. Hang on, like, uh Like, Sydney was just like, there were more fights than I've ever experienced in gay bars. You had gay guys swilling beer, um, which was unusual. <laughs> like, I mean, there was a lot of hotness and a lot of vacantness. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and that was unfortunate. Um, the story that was always told to me was that the interesting people were in Melbourne. But, um, every, I mean, everyone there was super fucking hot. But then there, there was also this sense of, like, these little boys had come from all over your country. Right. And this was the best place that they could go. Yeah. And then, like, getting anywhere better involves 6,000 miles. Right. You know? And just sort of, like... Being at the end uh-huh. and like how much they were just like having such a good time, like they were they were having a the hardest good time to prove right. it. Um, yeah, because they've made it. Yes. You know, it's this is the yeah, otherwise you know like yeah that, yeah I agree with what you mean. I I actually understand that. That makes a lot of sense to me. I honestly think I have some sense of Israel about West Hollywood of just like this is. <laughs> Like, I'm so grateful for this place. I like having this place so much. And if anyone tried to take it away from right. me, I think I, I would I would fight them tooth and nail. That's interesting. I um I like West Hollywood. I've lived here for, for like, you know, it's, it, ever since I came over here. Yeah. And I tried different places. I lived down with Jake Johansson down at Santa Monica for, like, a bit in a spare place he has. And, like, I moved around to different areas. But, like, I came back here when I rented somewhere because I just like this area. Why? 
it's, it's central. I can walk places because I'm a walker. Yeah. I like to walk. And I, I have this, like, I have a couple of different walks. You know, I can do sort of like a walk to something, which is uh-huh. like, you know, but I can also like walk uh, down like uh, Santa Monica and into Beverly Hills. And I like to just walk around the houses. Yeah. Like, you know, because it's so quiet and there's no one there. Yeah. And like all the houses are so beautiful. And I just like walk through there and stuff. I really like that. But I like how central it is. I can walk to most of the places that I want to go to and like yeah. drink and stuff. But I will say this. I also like... Uh, the Sunday afternoon like gay bar thing. I don't have never been to any of the gay bars yet, although it's, it's on my list of things to do. Yes. Um, but that vibe on Sunday, like down that end of Santa Monica where everyone's just like having a great time and it's like Sunday afternoon and people are drinking and partying. I like sometimes if I've just got back from like being on the road or whatever, uh-huh. I will just go for a walk. Like yes. down there and back. Because it's almost like going to a festival. Like going to like right. if you're in a town and they were having like a carnival or something, like you go, Oh yeah, right. But that's every Sunday afternoon. No, it's it's so lovely. For me, just the thing of like if I have like night out doing a show or just like boring night, that like out on my corner I'm gonna run into a drunk friend right. or just like a drunk stranger and there's there's something charming about that. And then just sort of the thing a of A drunk stranger is just a drunk friend you haven't met yet. Exactly. <laughs> Also, quality grindering. Right. Like, just really hot. Like, the, everybody's close. They're really hot people. Sure. It's good. Um, <laughs> but then just that feeling of, of like... Because I feel like straight people are very likely to be like, well, why, why do you have to go to a gay place? Why can't you just... There are gay people at our bars. Yeah, the, well, there's like one, and you don't know which one it is. And if you hit on somebody just because you find them attractive... That person might take that as an insult, right. which is a terrible and horrible situation to be in. And just being able to like deal with gay social life just from like going to Starbucks or Trader Joe's or whatever, like instead of having to like outsource all of that, because there are a lot of people who like are businessmen during the day and they live in a suburb and all of their social life is just when they get to the bar to when they leave the bar with somebody to fuck. And I feel like this is, you know, something a little more... I like a nice little gayborhood is what I'm saying. Right, a gayborhood. I didn't even... Oh, yeah, that's nice. Yes. Yeah, I do. I enjoy it here too. It's like a really fun place. Also, it's just like... it's not, Central is nice. One thing that's interesting is like, if you were an American, you would feel an obligation to prove who you were by living somewhere with more of an attitude than this. Whether it was Venice or whether it was Silver Lake or Echo Park, you would be needing to tell everybody who Will Anderson is. And there's something so nice about, like, just in a thousand different ways, you're never going to, like, fit in too much here. Like, so (laughs) you're fine being in West Hollywood. Yeah, I think that that's that, that's funny, isn't it? Like that idea of defining yourself by. And don't get me wrong, in my past, like you know, a young stand-up comedian in Melbourne living in like Fitzroy, which is like the inner suburbs of like that was very much. I was living in Fitzroy because there was a certain type of young stand-up comedian that I thought I was, and that young stand-up comedian lived in Fitzroy. Um, you guys use the word suburb wrong, and I'm just gonna say that. What do you say? Oh, so uh, so you guys use suburb for a neighborhood within the city, right? Um, we use suburb for things that are outside of the city. Like, um, so like, does that make sense to you? Yeah, I guess I know what you mean. Like we, well, we kind of mean it the same, but like in Melbourne, because Melbourne city and then the suburbs of Melbourne, but you're right. They're part of the greater city still. I, I may be misunderstanding how you guys use it, but I was, cause 
just, I've only been to Sydney. Shut up, guys. No, no, you're right. Uh, no, uh, you're absolutely right. As in the suburbs are joined to the city. Like everything has a heart of the city and then, like, yeah, you know. But in, so you're saying that here, that's the city. Like, So he, you wouldn't call West Hollywood a suburb? No, not remotely. No. Not remotely. You would call like Artesia a suburb. You right. would call, you know, the places out where people are driving 45 minutes to get to their job in the city. Yeah, we call uh, that another place. <laughs> <laughs> No, and I get that. Um, I was going to say we've only ever had cars in this country, but you guys are, you know, the the same age. Yep. Uh, here's I need your proper origin story. I need to know what kind of farm you grew up on. Uh-huh. I need to know if your parents were were pros at that. I need to know college, starting, stand up, that sort of thing. All right. Uh, grew up on a people have. There's a drinking game for this podcast, and I'm about to say a sentence that is probably the one that. And I'm so sorry to everyone who's no, listening no. to this podcast and has heard it a thousand hey, times. By we, the way, we should have done this at a Starbucks like people. You know what? There might be people listening for the first time. Okay. That's what I always think. There might be people listening for the first time. Understandable. Some of your huge fan base have come on board. It might be their first episode. They're <laughs> like, who is this guy that Guy is talking you to? You know that my singular dream is to go be the ruby wax of a Commonwealth country. Of, of like just not making sense here in America or not, and just going and being that pushy American who goes and is, yeah. and is wacky and asks transgressive questions of your celebrities so that you can then giggle into your hands. Yeah, that is, but that, that I think you could do that. Uh, yeah. That's an achievable dream. It would involve leaving. Though. You'd have to move. Yeah, yes. exactly. No, you don't even have to these days. Richard Reed, who not doesn't do that by the way, there's a showbiz reporter on like one of the morning shows here. And he's a guy called Richard Reed who lives in West Hollywood. I see him at Trader Oh, Jones. really? Yeah. And he does like every morning he does that. But he's a Hollywood showbiz yes, reporter. But you know, like. All right. Say your drinking game sentence. Okay. I grew up on a road that was named after my grandfather who built the road by hand after the Second World War. My father has lived on that road for 71 years. He has never moved off that road. He has never drunk alcohol. He has never smoked cigarettes. He's never tried drugs. He married the first woman that he ever kissed and he is not religious. I mean, the question that came off of that was what brand of God had been yep. sold to doesn't, him. Doesn't believe in any God. So your father is just a nature spirit. Your, Loves farming. Your, your father is Just a, loved farming. So uh, When he was 14, he left home. I was saying this to... I, I was just actually having this conversation with someone the other day where I was like, the thing that I now remember that I haven't even thought of until I was 40 years old, like about my father... Oh, you is, don't say that. In, I mean, I realize oh, sorry, we're in your home I was here. Like, it's already out in public. 31, 31 years old. By the way, this is Lindsay over here. He's a comedian from Australia. He's crushing in my office at the moment. Again, Lindsay. not a man's name in this country. Uh, Lindsay? Yes. Yeah, okay. So, <laughs> sorry, Lindsay. You'll have to change your name while you're here. Can I have one of those beers that you brought home? Is that all right? Guy, do you want anything to drink? I'm good, thank you. Okay. Um, so, uh, so, yes, I'm a farm kid. Dad, dad at 14 grew up. He's always had a sense of his own self. Uh-huh. I never saw my dad in my entire life pretending to be anyone to impress anyone to yeah. like you know like i i change all the time to try to impress people right. or be in that situation i never saw my dad be anything other than my dad he was just one of those guys that from obviously a very young age knew exactly what he wanted to do what sort of person that he thought he was and like i'm sure he's had doubts and had fears and all those sort of things but yeah. i don't have any memory of that being part of my life there's just something so uh, like those guys who just had a sense of certainty about the way that the world worked and sort of moved through it. It's always awesome to watch. And I have like such mixed annoyance with the way that the young people of Silver Lake 
attempt to dress like them uh-huh. and be pretend farmers and pretend plumbers and stuff. Sure. Because on the one hand, it's like you don't fucking know. You don't have any. You don't have any of the skills. You don't have any of the capabilities right. of those people. Before you buy the overalls, you have to unblock a fucking toilet. Right. But at the same time, those people are terrible and narrow minded. I mean, not your father. I don't know. But uh, like my dad and grandpa. Sure. You know, terrible, narrow minded bigots of people who are also wonderful and, you know, know how to fix th- Like, uh, I. My father built my home. All of the wiring in my home, all of the plumbing in my home was done by a 23-year-old who had, like, right. just learned it on the job. And so it leads to a lot of shit going wrong in the house <laughs> because he was shitheaded when he right. did it. But it's also a lovely situation of, right. like, you know, he, he made this because I was going to be born and so we needed a bigger, like, that's the loveliest. Keep going. Okay, so dad's been doing that all his life. My brother's also a farmer. So he, he took over the farm. Well, he and dad worked together on the farm. What sort of farm? It's a dairy farm. Okay. So uh, all my life, it was like, you know, we were around cows and stuff, like milking cows. There was some like, like occasionally they would kill like a beef cow, but mostly for food for the farm. Not like, not like you know, for export or to put out. There. Right. It'd be really like, they used to have this thing called the mobile butcher van. And basically it was like, you know, like one of those like uh, ice cream vans, but like, or a taco truck or whatever, but like of death. And so, like, it would come around to the farm and there would be a butcher in the back of it. And so, essentially, we would have these big tub freezers and, like, the cow would come out, like, Dexter style, you know, wrapped in plastic and it'd suddenly be sausages and chops and, like, you know. And it was all there in this tub freezer, you know, as I was growing up. So, that was me growing up. I was on the farm until I was 17. We used to milk, you know, used to milk cows before I went to work and, like I said, bale hay and do proper farm stuff. So, that was – but I didn't – I knew pretty – were you like, I'm going to get the fuck out of this uh, hick town? Yeah. Yeah, I really was. I, the prejudice point's interesting because I think I know exactly what you mean about this idea of like, sometimes when someone's sheltered, they're not even necessarily prejudiced. Like, I don't think where my family is from, and I've got a good story about this, but it's it's such a weird story as well, which is my small town Hayfield, when I was growing up, like, just because of the things that I was interested in, like, I, like got homophobic bullying in my direction. Do you know what I mean? Like, it was that sort of place. Yeah. But now, this tiny town Hayfield, like, this guy that I grew up with, like, uh, who I had, had known was gay for years, we'd, like, bumped into each other in Melbourne one night and he'd had sex with one of my friends. So I was like, okay, he's, he's gay. Yes. <laughs> That's fine. But um, he went back to this country town with his, like, uh, well, they can't be husband, but with his, like, partner. Yes. And... They opened a cafe in town. It was the first time the town had had a proper cafe. You know, they made good coffee and good like, and that has done more for opening the minds of these country people because now that cafe is literally the hub of the town because yeah. anything because it's the only and so you know that they're not but they haven't had any experience. Does that make sense? No, it's is that a weird thing for me to say? No, no, it's it's perfectly reasonable. Um, it's. I always wonder whether it is stupid for people to continue to live in those tiny little towns, gay people, I mean, right. or whether it is necessary and like we have to at some point in time stop. You have fl- to do a missionary program. Yes. Like you know, at least once a year, you all have to have a meeting here and go, look, it's your year to go out and start a cafe. They're doing God's work. <laughs> right. And, and part of it is like we, in this country at least, kind of have a system that's like, oh, you're smart enough to go to college and stuff, you can be gay. But if right. you're somebody who's just going to work in Walmart your whole life, uh-huh. like there isn't necessarily the space for that. My town was so weird because it was like growing. How like, big is the town? Okay. So it's 50,000 people, which is 
very small for California, but in any other, in many other states would be like a big city. But, um, and I, we're sort of like outside of that town. Like I went to high school in a town of 2000 people. That's just like rice and almonds and prunes. Um, but like, you know, the guys who lived on the other side of the orchard from us were, uh, the faggots and they were just a pair of doctors who had decided to move to what they thought was a charming little farm town north of San Francisco. Right. But like, was, we love almonds. Yes. Um, and then like there were different faggots who ran the, the, the flower shop where my mom worked and like my music teacher, we, my dad went to go do repairs at her house and it's like, Oh, she lives with a woman. They are a thing. And just sort of these things existed, but you just weren't able to like right. given there's this weird way you have to live in some degree of shame. And it's so funny because like my hometown is a sweet and loving place full of people who like n- know me and have a sense of immediacy with me and don't have ill will towards right. me. They just have a certain sense that I should know my place about that sort of thing uh-huh. because God knows they're knowing their place about a thousand other things. And it was just like, I, in so many ways, did not want to know my place. Right. No, and nor should you have to know your place. Right. Though. Right. Like, I mean, that's the broader thing. Like, it's, and that's the opposite side to the story I told you about the cafe, which is, I still am like, surely you don't have to fucking meet, like, surely we can move beyond you going, oh, no, actually, I met some gay guys and they're nice, so now I'm not home. Right. Like, surely you can make that decision before that happens, right? But there, there is a way that you... But I get it. You can't... Like, people do need to have a learning process. Uh, about the slaughter van, A, uh, the only vet I ever experienced was a large animal vet who just, uh-huh. like, came to your house and took care of shit. Yep. And the first time I heard about somebody having an animal like taking an animal to have it put to sleep. I was a teenager, maybe in college and seriously had to have a moment. I I think I was in college because I had a moment where I was like, well, why didn't they just shoot them? And then I was like, don't say that out loud. Like people will realize (laughs) because you know, when a dog gets very sick or it gets hit by a car, but is still alive, then your dad shoots it. And one time when you're eight, he makes you watch. So you'll understand what needs to get done. Okay, what happened when you were 17? So I, I left, uh, well, I finished school, finished high school. Uh-huh. And uh, I went to, uh, by that stage, I kind of liked comedy already, uh-huh. you know, but I'd never had known anyone who was in show business. In fact, I, like I say to people, the first person I really ever met in show business was me. Uh-huh. Like I just didn't have any friends or connections or any, like, and at that stage, being a stand up comedian in Australia was not a job. Yeah, you must have, a, like, however distant a sense I had of it. It's weird to think how much more distant your sense must have been because you were three hours from Melbourne and that's not even Sydney. Like, that's not... My family hadn't left the fucking road yet. Yeah. Like, and I was like, uh, you know, I mean, so I didn't like leave school and think I'm going to be a comedian. Right. I thought, but so I, I did a journalism degree because I thought, well, you know, writing and commenting on things and, you know, that seems like maybe it's something that's vaguely enough in the area of this thing that I'm yes. interested in, but is also a job. Uh, and then at the end of that... What university did you go to? University of Canberra. Okay. Uh, I wanted to be a political journalist. Like, uh-huh. Canberra's where... Like, it's like going to Washington to study. Like, so Don't there was, tell me what Canberra is. Uh-huh. I know what Canberra is. How do you is. know what Canberra is? No one, a lot of people in Australia are not even that sure about Canberra. And I know things like this. Okay. It's one of your two territories. 
Do you know? Do you know that it's our capital territory? Yes, the ACT, and it was meant to be in between. It was meant to be halfway between Melbourne and Sydney because they couldn't decide which of them was going to be the capital. But it's much closer to Sydney. Oh, really? <laughs> it's a compromised city, but it's still only three hours from Sydney. Oh, and that, like that's, six hours from Melbourne. That's very funny. Yeah. So yeah. And it's a man-made city, but it was a great place to go to university because there was two universities in town. It's not that big. Like, it's got all the things of a city, particularly for a country kid. Like, yeah. I mean, I, our nearest big town was like 1,200 people and that was a, a big town. Jesus. Right? Like, proper country people. So, for me to go to Canberra, it was like a, it was like a practice city mm-hmm. before I went to Melbourne, you know. But it was great because all the college kids knew each other. So, it was really – it was a fun time. But I was working full-time as a journalist at the same time. So, I was like doing uni and like working in the press gallery. Like not really – I mean mostly just – yeah. For whom? For uh, – so, at the end of my first year – it was a small program, you know, they take 30 students yeah. at the end of the first year, it's like 15 or whatever. And But there was this incentive, which was the reason I'd chosen that school to go to. If you were first in the first year, they had an intern program with like a paid intern program with the each media organisation that was in the Canberra Press Gallery, they were just on like a rotation. So it would mean that one paper would only get it every 10 years or whatever, but you got like a job oh, that's so that awesome. paper, right? So the year, weirdly enough, the year that I got it, because it was only one, obviously, a year, it was a, a very popular paper in Australia called the Financial Review, but it's a businessman's paper. Like it's, you know, full of stock markets and finance and stuff, which is not what I was interested right. in at all, but that just happened but to But it must be. have forced you to learn about a lot of interesting, uh, I mean, a lot of valuable stuff maybe. Right. And, you know, it just taught me to like be in an office where people were working in as a newspaper and I got to cover an election and, you know. It's always weird when you deal with those comedians who just never had to do that. Like who just never had any, this is what a job is like experience. I think that you've got to do it so that you know that you hate it. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, like, that's why I went to law school. Like, it was, like law school for me was just solidified. This is not something you can do. And I think if I had, like, believed in myself to try being a stand-up comedian, I would have spent the whole time saying, fuck this, this isn't working out. You didn't get to go to Montreal. You need to go back to law school. And eventually I would have gone back to law school right. and I would be a sad person right now. I absolutely agree with that. Do like, you, go on. Do you talk about, po- like... As somebody who started out very interested in politics, do you talk about politics much as a comic? Because I've never really seen you do that, but I've seen you in mostly like TV or like American things. Right. So uh, when I first started out, like a lot of the time, and like uh, a couple of the shows that I've done on television and stuff have had kind of like newsy, funny, you know, politics-y sort of thing. I mean, things. the Gruen thing was very much so like media criticism. Right, that's yeah. right. And the show I did before that, Glass House, was like a, 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 like a news politics comedy show. Mm. So, um, yeah. So definitely a lot in the old days. But when I, used to, when I started doing international work, I'm like, fuck, I'm like writing 20 minutes of material that I can't take anywhere else I go. It makes absolutely no sense. So for the last four years, I've done almost no i did like a big thing about our boat people policy like the asylum seeker policy yeah like a couple of years ago because it was something i was passionate about but um at the moment because there's so much like p- the interesting political stuff in australia mm-hmm. like i'm considering it's a fucking crazy idea and i'm i, I keep saying it out loud and i I shouldn't because I'm not going to do it, but I might do it. Uh, I'm thinking about doing two shows at the festival next year. I'm oh, thinking wow. about writing a show that is my like touring show, my big show. And I'm thinking about writing something that's just an hour, like a literally an hour of me talking about all the things I want to talk about politics. Wouldn't set like it would be a smaller show, like only for the people who want to see me rant and rave about politics for an hour. But 
I feel like I'd like to go back to that a bit. Okay. A thing that fascinates me about being from a country like yours is this thing of be like what the relationship needs to be, uh, how, how much you move beyond it and how much you own Australia and Australia owns you because it is like kind of like the way that like there are a lot of gay comedians who don't ever do gay shows. There are a lot of gay comedians who only do gay shows and like you can't just do the shitty gay shows because they'll you'll never turn into a real comedian. And then there's people who are like, I'm a real comedian. I don't do the gay shows. And it's like, no, but right. they like they, and the gay shows won't turn into good shows unless they have real comedians. They then. won't turn into right. good shows until they have, unless they have real comedians. And also they they get my voice like they hey i have those jokes that i want to tell that nobody else is going to be able to get um and also like all of these voices will just end up sounding sounding like straight white guys from so um my card was full and we i think we talked for about five minutes so we missed you saying something really excellent because we were talking about australian politics and how i was thinking about doing an australian politics show and do you want to continue your thought or should I tell them what you said? You tell them. Okay. Well, basically, you were making the point that, you know, if the people grow out of being, uh, you know, in a place where they're talking about Australian politics because they're touring overseas or whatever, then those people should be talking about it, right? They're the ones who should be talking about it. Well, it's as somebody who pays more attention to Australian and like not so much Kiwi, but Australian and Canadian politics than most Americans. Part of me always is like, how come these like uncharismatic, not particularly capable rubes always end up being in control of the country? And the answer is like when you're in a country that matters but isn't Britain or the United States or Germany, like you get to a point of this doesn't really matter. And you go and you do something else. But that also leaves a situation where like you know, you have like people, it's, it's like, a, it's one of, it's like one of our state legislatures or like, it's just like a little mob running this, this place. And you, you don't have scrutiny. You don't have commentary. You don't have people thinking about it because everyone in Canada and Australia is laughing at good jokes about Barack Obama. Right. Instead of having quality jokes that are talking shit at Tony Abbott. I think also our countries, like I think the great thing about America, like, and there's, you know, there's, as you know, there's a range of things about America that don't work. But one of the great things about America that works, like is firstly that that freedom of speech thing. And I know like when it comes to like, you know, Janet Jackson's boob out or like somebody saying fuck on radio, it's a whole different like area in some ways but you have like this defense of like free speech or being able to criticize politicians or be able to criticize those people in the height but they will come on and they will engage in those debates and like in australia no polit like i see republicans or i see fucking bill o'reilly go on a debate with you know J- john stewart or something yeah. like in australia they just wouldn't talk to you uh-huh. they just wouldn't come in because they don't you know Why? they don't in- AL politicians i think mostly aren't like don't trust that they can win an argument. But your politicians, there was this lesbian comic in San Francisco who would be terrible 19 out of 20 jokes and then uh-huh. she would tell one joke that was amazing and yeah. she was Canadian and she said that a prime minister is a president who has to be able to speak without a teleprompter and I just think it's the best <laughs> joke ever. But like, 
they have to deal with people yelling at them every week. Shouldn't sure. they be capable of handling that shit? Right. Well, they should be, yeah. I mean, and I think in the old days, Australian politicians were. Yeah. You know, I mean, Bob Hawke. Like, yes. Mate, for me, Bob Hawke's the one. Like, I, From <laughs> Bob Hawke onwards, I know a lot of people say Paul Keating, who was the guy who came after him, uh-huh. is, like, is like, you know, our... But fuck, man, Bob Hawke. Like, when Australia- Bob Hawke Kool-Aid manned into my awareness. Bob Hawke was like referenced enough by uh, like various sorts of media that I was like, who is this guy? And then I- Have you seen that footage of him uh, sculling the beer at the the cricket ground? No, I have not. Right. He's like, <laughs> this is like recently. Oh, really? He's like 70. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm going to find it on the computer <laughs> and show it to you. Um, so- I uh, I loved Bob Hawke, and the thing about Bob Hawke, like one of his most famous things, and this, and this, oh, hang on, this sums up, uh, this sums up Bob Hawke, uh, is that uh, when Australia won the America's Cup, do you know what the America's Cup is? It's yachting, right? Yeah, and America had never lost the America's Cup. Uh-huh. I mean, it was called the America's Cup, right. so but they'd never lost it in a hundred years, and the uh-huh. first time that it was ever won was uh, by Australia too, uh, mm-hmm. and they had a wind keel that was d- designed by. Uh, well, uh, John Bertram was the skipper. It was like a famous Australian thing. Yes. Like, I remember all this stuff, even though this was like yeah. 30 years ago. But the famous footage is of Bob Hawke at the celebrations, clearly fucking blind drunk. Yeah. And he says on national television, uh, any boss who sacks a guy for not coming into work tomorrow is a bloody muck. <laughs> Like the Prime Minister essentially just declared a national holiday. That's like, awesome. Yeah. So um, he like he was also like a notorious like um, pants man and all those sort of things. But well, there's also something. Well, a liberals from 30 years ago are the worst thing because they always manage to be like smart about four things and rape a woman. Um, not that I'm saying no. anyone did that, but um, uh, and I shouldn't have made a joke about that. All of those things. Um, but I forget what my I'm going to show you some footage. So this is only a couple of years ago. So I guess Bob Hawke's like, what, 80 now, I guess, right? So this is him at like the cricket. So this is our big sporting event. Yeah. And he's walked through the crowd and some Australian man has handed him a, a pint of beer. Yes. So this should, uh, this is, oh, hang on. We've got a fucking ad. Well done, YouTube. I appreciate that. Okay, here we go. Skip ad. Here we go, just coming through the crowd. That's amazing hair. <laughs> That's what you want. <laughs> just moves on through the crowd. No, that's that's real classy showmanship. Right. Well, there's also that weird thing of here we always have we have a president. We always have that mm. sense that like the guy in charge is the dude. Well, he's and, also the leader of the free world, you know. Yeah, but he's also our head of state, and mm-hmm. so he's like America, right? And like we have had to be able to figure out how Bill Clinton was America, mm-hmm. and we've had to fill, figure out how President Obama was America. But you guys always having queen and governor general and these things around you can end up having these prime ministers who are just like technocrats who are moving things around but like a dude like that is 
presidential in the sense of like I am this fucking country right. beer throws down flows down this throat real easy like I could probably castrate a sheep like right. if you handed me a sheep I'd know how to remove the testicles from this sheep just so that we could get more meat off of it I am Australia right um, and that's beautiful here's the here's the thing I want to deal with before we go yeah from your Differences between Australian comedians and us and uh, and Americans mm. and why? Um, okay, well, I mean, obviously the 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 culture thing, like we're bigger, we're okay. So the nature of our industry, like as we've talked about, is like I have to do a festival show every year. Yeah, if I want to be a comedian in Australia, like who earns his living mostly being a comedian. It means I have to like festivals and touring is the only way to really sustain that audience. Uh-huh. The country isn't big enough for me to just gig like 365 days a year and earn a living as a comedian. So it means that every year I'm thinking about, okay, well, what's my next hour or what's my next 80 minutes? Whereas what I find here is because the culture has been about refining your stuff for TV spots. Yes. That, People are much better at doing seven minutes here than I could ever be. And that's what I've got to learn how to do. You know, like, no, 70 is fine for me, but seven is harder. You um, know? So a television program, like, is a television program advertisement for the touring that makes you money? Yes. Uh, that's essentially what it is. Yes. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, even here, like, the difference between, like, in San Francisco, you know, a year and a half in, I was having to, like, do an hour for for gay things or like a charity event right. or something like that and then you come here and no you're never doing more than 15 minutes and it's mainly just about you having the hardest best seven minutes that can explain who you are very clearly right. because you're having to re-explain who you are every time uh the second thing is the racial thing okay like Ta- so much of comedy here is racial like sometimes racist i would say yes. but definitely racial like right. you know very much like and i think like, and I mean, obviously not the best comedy, uh-huh. like, you know, the best comedy elevates, of course, but you see a lot more of like, I think, uh, men are like this, women are like this, black people are like this, Latinos are like, th- like, you know, very much just, there like- was a guy in San Francisco, he was a black comedian and he essentially had a grid and he would take some issue, automobiles, gay guy in the Miata, black guy in the Escalade and like he would just and people loved it but he would on every single subject just go through it like it was math right and it was terrible and artless but very successful right um I I'm always ready to identify you guys are more conversational and you are more charming I think um I think there'll be two things I, I was thinking about this in Edinburgh a lot of the time in the old days, British people would come to America to work and have a terrible time, or even Montreal, which even though that's a North American festival, you know, it's a Canadian festival, yeah. it's because it was the industry festival of North America, right. then it still had a very American feel When's to it. When's the last French speaker you heard of coming out of Montreal? Right. Yeah. So the British would go there and yeah, some of the big British acts who were massive acts you know, in Australia and, and in Britain would go to America and have a hard time. And in the old days, you'd find that like, you know, American acts who went to England would have a terrible time. Terrible time, uh-huh. but because Australia has a bit of both cultures, right. I think it travels better. Australians yeah. have always been reasonably like I've always found wherever I went, people kind of like yeah. I've never felt like oh no, people don't get this form or what I'm doing or because I grew up as much on Billy Connolly as I did on Bill Hicks or yeah. George Carlin or whatever. Yeah, you know? uh, like you guys, you guys have uh, an energy and a sense of fun that I think makes a lot of sense to us. Is that condescending? No, no, I get that. Uh, um, but th- there is something about 
the like, I always see a pokey pushiness, a very Jewish pokey pushiness in American comedy that I feel like is absent in um, like Commonwealth comedy. What do you mean by that? I'm like to some extent when you when you described a guy as being Australia's Lenny Bruce, I was very interested in seeing what that was like because there there are a couple of words in Hebrew that essentially mean like I'm just doing this because I want to annoy you uh-huh. or I don't give a shit what you think and sure. like don't sort of translate and there's something about that that like some like cross pollinates with the First Amendment and turns into this like transgressive pushy critically kind of thing that we can do that I feel like I don't know whether it's like residual class structure. I don't know if it's coming from countries that are, you know, we're largely populated by English speakers and not a bunch of immigrants. Like you guys had significant immigrant populations, just not, not as much as us. Right. Um, that it does lead to us having a somewhat more, combative style of comedy and like i think that's true i feel like it is more combative definitely why why do you think it is i don't know why yeah so i don't know enough about why but i certainly think your observation that it's more combative is absolutely true yeah no doubt about that um and it's interesting and sometimes i will watch somebody who is british or australian and see audiences liking them and just wanting to have a conversation with them and i will be you know, envious of that. And be like, <laughs> why do you have to keep hitting them in the face with a brick, Guy Branham? Like, right. why can't you just have a conversation? I do think that that, it, the, I mean, it sometimes feels like, a, a, yeah, the conversation's a really interesting word, actually. Uh-huh. Because I always, and people pick me up on it all the time because they think I'm being a wanker when I talk about we, yeah. like in relation to the show. But I really do think of it as like a conversation, like a very one-sided conversation. Right. But I really do feel, I always say it's like surfing. Like you've got to be in tune with like the, yes. you know, the, their energy and feeding off what they're doing. And I think there is that element of like, but also even in a practical sense, like because Australians grow up hosting and the second most experienced person will, or maybe even the most experienced person will be the host, crowd work and not, not like where you're from, you're an idiot, but right. actual proper crowd work where yes. you can create moments in the room that will only be in that moment for, there's things that we have to develop, I think, Well, a bit that's more. the thing of you guys also having to provide a quality show and not just seven minutes. Right. Who in Los Angeles would ever work on crowd work? You can't do that on television right um and so you're not having a conversation you're talking to them point even though i'm still talking to them like i mean i don't like them to talk back no but (laughs) but audiences also want to have that feeling that you are aware of them and that you are aware of perspectives outside of yourself um and that you need to give them a voice as much as not as much as you're giving yourself a voice but to some extent in response uh statement is uh american comedy can't be like surfing because we're Americans. We're supposed to storm through nature. Yeah, you dominate the waves. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Fuck you, waves. Question is... We've got a jet ski. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yes. Um, but a, a three years in douchey comedy guy who's living in whatever the Fitzroy of today is, sure. are they proud of themselves for having a Holocaust joke? Are they proud of themselves? Yeah, yeah still that. Yeah, okay. no, still that. Yeah. Like, st- definitely in that younger, like, you know, people who confuse, like, ironic racism with racism and all those sort of, like, people who will say, 
you know, the rape joke debate happened in Australia as well, yeah. you know, because there were people there who thought that if you, like, joke about rape or whatever, immediately it's funny or what, you know, that sort of stuff. But there's definitely that subculture there, of course, yeah. There, there's something so fascinating about walking away with the wrong lessons from Lenny Bruce right. of, like, oh, if I say it and it scares someone or it makes someone uncomfortable, that's that's good. And it's like, well, you will, you need to think about what you're saying. Right, Turns you have to out, say the right thing. Yeah. Yeah, no. I mean, I, I still remember how, I mean, I, I can't remember, yeah, but like I remember the first time I even heard like when Lenny Bruce, who like today, you can't really listen to Lenny Bruce and go, uh, this doesn't sound like modern stand-up. Yeah. But like I remember him talking about like he was doing a piece like about, you know, someone asking him whether he was gay, like, you know, whether he preferred to sleep with men or with women. And he, he was just like, well, which man and which woman? Like, I mean, yeah. and I remember at the time thinking, yeah. No, you're right. Yeah. Like, you can't just ask me that. Like, if it's two people that I'm... Like, you know... And I even remember that being a really transgressive idea at the yeah. time. Like, you know... But that's the sort of stuff you want to provoke. But, but people miss that all the time. They watch Louis and think because Louis does a rape joke that they should do rape jokes. Or they watch Bill Hicks and they talk about aliens and smoking pot instead of, like, what he was actually... Or whatever. You know? I, I need to make two points before we're done. Yes. One of them is I hate that we always have the national council of comedians who are most right because that national council of comedians who are most right is always straight guys it's never not straight guys you know just the way that like oh ask louis ck chris rock and jerry seinfeld what they think and like the ladies who were their contemporaries are just living in houses in the valley and don't have careers anymore and i'm always just like those guys are always you know right. like the, the the only one of them who doesn't have a joke that involves the word faggot is Jerry Seinfeld, and that's because he only talks about socks. Right. And I'm not saying you, <laughs> you shouldn't say faggot. I'm just right. saying you should think about before you say faggot. Sure. The other thing is when you were talking long, long ago about the times when you are less hot and what will you do with yourself, I have just – I worked with Joan Rivers for only six months, mm -hmm. but – just the experience of watching somebody who's always had to work, who's never felt confidently capable like she was on top of anything. like, And I realize that health plays into it and all of that. But that bitch was 81 years right. old and she was capable. Like perfectly capable. And there's something so lovely when I get mad that it always feels like a knife fight along the way, part of me is like, well, yeah, maybe that means you get to be in your 60s or 70s. Look, oh, if, no, if I my heart and my T-cells hold out. I, but I, I agree with you on that. Yeah. I think you want to, like, I mean, this was my big thing about what I've been doing here, like in some ways, is that thing of going, just build your foundation. Yeah. Like, you know, build it so that you can just keep doing it. Right. That's all I really want to do. Yeah. I just don't want to have to do anything else. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, pay my bills and not have to do yes. anything else. None of your job involves smelling cows. None of it. None of and it. And I hope it never will. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so I'm much for so, having I'm me. I'm sad we missed that mysterious four minutes that people won't get to hear, but this I'm sure it was all genius. One of the best Charlie experiences I've ever had. I appreciate that. Cheers, mate. <laughs>